0: Good morning. So, there's no bulletin, so I thought it would just be best to say, My name is Justin. For those that don't know, I'm normally the guy that sits over here with the 10 children. (laughs) By day, I am a special education teacher. By night, I sit with 10 children, so there is a little bit of madness that I think starts creeping in. (laughs) And so, when Bob called upon me to do a sermon, normally what you would want to do is you want to have it all planned out and outlined. So, For some reason, I did nothing more than outline it, so forgive me, but these things are resting on my heart, and I don't want to give sweat to my wife for this whole thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open with prayer, and then we'll begin with our sermon. Our gracious Lord, again, we want to thank you for the Sabbath, and allow us to take a deep breath, realize that it's the rest that we need to receive. Put the world behind us, put you in front of us. Help our bodies to be an open vessel to you, to be controlled by the Spirit, to do your will, and to, so, Lord, to see you come back for us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so, my name is Justin. I do those things, but there's other things that I like to do, and it's probably not the most manly things in the world. I like recipes. I like to cook for the family. I like to cook for myself, and I like to look for those things. And once upon a time, it used to be I would go to the library because I'd find that to be the most abundant place to find cookbooks, but nowadays we have the internet, internet, you know, and it's great because I'll go through and I'll find all these things and I'll, I won't, I won't differentiate between vegetarianism or anything else because I feel like I can, I can, I can veggie them up myself. But what I don't like and what drives me the most crazy are food blogs. I don't know if anybody knows what these things are, but these people have started to make these recipe pages and it takes forever to scroll through and to find the ingredients, to find the recipe, because they're giving you just basically their life story. They want to tell you about who loves their cake, why their cake came to be, and they'll, they'll take a picture of each individual egg being cracked. And then it just drives me absolutely nuts when I go through these things. But what I did find is I did find a little blog that also kind of bled into my other joy in life, and I love History. I love, I love history because I love the fact that we can understand cultures, we can understand, we can understand places, geography, and the people, and when you intermingle that with food, it kind of puts a little bit more passion on the plate. That's kind of how I look at it. So as I'm going through, I was finding this, this recipe that I wanted to talk to you about because the title of the sermon is called The Sacrilegious Sandwich. The Sacrilegious Sandwich. Why would a sandwich be sacrilegious? Well, let me read to you. This sandwich has existed in some form since the early 13th century in Spain. Spain, at that time, was populated by Moorish palaces, Jewish neighborhoods. And before Spain's conquest of the Americas... The Christians, they called it the Christians, but it was one prevailing church at that time, was taking over that Iberian Peninsula, and they were starting what we call the Inquisition. Now the Spanish Inquisition was put into place because the prevailing church at that time, I'm just going to call it that, believed that there weren't enough believers and they needed to convert those believers and so they would go into the homes and into the, the ghettos of the, of the area where the Jewish, the Jewish people and the Moors lived, which are modern-day Muslims, and they would try to convert them. So as the reign began of the Inquisition and Inquisitors, it was very unforgiving for the Muslims and the Jews at the time. Sephardic Jews were banished from the country during that time. They were given the choice to leave. And if not, the other, they faced three options. Convert, get out, or face death. The remaining Muslims, they suffered the same fate. So, what many would do is they would continue their practice. So, Muslims, that were the converted ones they called Moriscos, and the baptized Jews continued to practice their religion in secret, but faced constant scrutiny. Outward symbols of conversion became key to superficial acceptance. In many instances, this is, this is odd, it came down to pork. Because the prevailing church knew that neither of those individual peoples would eat pork. So government inspectors would storm into suspected Jews and sniff out traces of heresy. If there wasn't pork on the table, the Jews' conversion was deemed a sham, and they could be burned at the stake. As a survival mechanism, Muslims started to eat pork. Jews started to hang and cured hams from their windows. They cooked their vegetables in lard, According, and they threw ham hocks, pig bones, and chunks of belly into their sacred lamb, garbanzo, and vegetable stew. This meat was eaten separately, and the broth was used for the next week's soups. And on and on and on. Willingness to take down the swine pulled from the stew showed their suspecting neighbors that they had done away with their porkless ways and were truly devoted to the church, or at least devoted to staying alive. As strange as that sounds, what we, what we would call that today is we would call that compromise. And... That sandwich today, if you were to go to Spain, they call that the, the Montedito de Pringa, and I could roll my R's a little bit there. And these people, they eat it, and it comes, it comes grilled for them, and it was born of this stew that they would put all their pork into their sacred lamb. Compromise is something that we suspect we have, or we have within our church. We have it within ourselves. And what we need to do is we need to realize who it affects and who it doesn't affect. It is said that a half-hearted Christian, compromising Christian, will not impact the world. And so what is the compromises we see as a Christian? Some of the compromises that we see are simply based on the fact of what we entail, what 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 we witness. Many churches you can see nowadays, they'll put a coffee shop within their church foyer. That's compromise, and they hope that they can bring people, into their sub- bring people into their church and at the same time offer them something, maybe not within their belief. One example of a compromised Christian, we're going to read this, and it's going to be a study that we're going to look at. It's going to be in, in the book of Kings, 1 Kings 3.6. If you'll turn with me there, it's the story of Solomon. 1 Kings 3:6. At this point in Israel's history, David had died. Solomon had already gone through and cleaned out some of the people that were um, trying to take the kingdom before he had there a little bit more. It was it was his brother and, and Joab, we would see. But we get to this point in Solomon's life where he's he's starting, he has this dream. And i will read it to you, first Kings three, six. And Solomon had a dream by night, and this is in verse five. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto the David my servant, my father, mercy according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and in an uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept him in great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne. And now, O Lord God, verse 7, Thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know, how, I know not how to go out or to come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered for counted or multitude. Number nine, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge the people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people?" Solomon's prayer is kind of one of those beautiful things, because when he asked for wisdom, it wasn't for wisdom for himself. he was asking it for his people. He asked for it because he was given a great multitude of people to, to lead. And he understood that what he needed most of all was probably that wisdom in order to lead them. There's going to be a lot of troubles, there's going to be a lot of problems that he needed to solve, and at this time they were still, the kings were the judges of the time. And so Solomon did right. Solomon did right to the point that God said that he was pleased by this request, and he and then turned over and he gave him the riches and the honor that he didn't ask for. That was huge. That was huge. Because what we would find here is as we read through, Solomon did according to God's command at that point, he did judge his people accordingly. It got to the point that if we read in 1 Kings 10.1, if you'll turn to me there, he was showcasing this knowledge. He was doing exactly what God had asked him to do because if we go back and we understand what the Israelites were meant to be doing, they were meant to be a nation amongst other nations teaching them about the way of God. And they were meant to be doing this. And before I get too far ahead of myself, let's just keep that in mind because in 1 Kings 10.1, mine's entitled, The Visit of the Queen of Sheba. And it says, And when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. Verse 2, And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels, bare spices, much gold, precious stones. And she was come to Solomon, and she committed with, communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her the questions, and there was not anything hid from the king which he did not, t- which she told her not. As we go on, we can read that when, when the queen of Sheba left there, she was amazed. She was amazed by his wisdom, and she was amazed not by his wisdom, but also the God that he showed her. And. If you take, and we've been to Ethiopia before, and a lot of people think that's kind of where Sheba was from, it's definitely a very old, orthodox country that holds on to still a lot of Jewish beliefs. And if you ask the right people, they'll believe that a lot of those teachings came from Sheba via Solomon, and they've maintained in some of those small country areas, and in some of those smaller villages north, To this day, because of the Solomon's teaching to Sheba. But but we get to another point, and this is what I wanted to talk about more than anything else, because I equate Solomon with somebody who is new to the church, maybe not even new to the church, but maybe they've been in the church for a while. How about this? How about we just call it all Christian people? And we start off, and we get on fire, and we know what's right. And we ask God for these things that are right. We live according to that, and we're doing marvelous things. We understand our place. We understand our purpose. We're given a light, and we shine through that light. Then we get to that but. We get to that but because that but is something that we want to hold dearly to. It's something that we compromise in our lives is it out of fear is it out of is it out of like what what, the, what these Jews and Muslims were doing out of out of life saving preservation a lot of times not in our world sometimes it's just to equate ourselves with the world sometimes just to equate ourselves to allow the world to come in and to be compromised by their beliefs intermingled with ours Solomon in 1 Kings 11:1 so bang just jump right over we start off with that one key word, but. Mine says in verse, chapter 11, verse 1, For all the good that Solomon did, for that beautiful prayer that Solomon offered up for his people, for understanding who his father was and understanding that God was going to grant them many blessings as a nation, but King Solomon loved many strange women Together with the daughter of the Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. Now, if that doesn't mean much to you, luckily the scripture does go on to detail what the problem is, what this is. Of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, these are the nations concerning which the Lord said to the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And it says, Solomon, clave unto these in love. So, Solomon, if we're giving him the benefit of the doubt as the wise king that he is, do you believe Solomon knew this command? Do you believe Solomon honestly knew that he was not to intermingle with the Moabites, Mammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. But he did. And he didn't just intermingle with them. He married into them. To the point that if we read some of the, 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 the scriptures, we'll find out that he had over a thousand wives and concubines. Now, historically what happened here is, is he was building up an empire and he was trying to make peace with all these neighboring countries. And by doing so, we would see this happen with England, with France, and with Spain during the, the, actually during the time of the Inquisition, is they would marry each other off, intermarry. And that would allow them a place inside the other palaces, the other kingdoms, so they wouldn't have as nearly as many wars. I believe Solomon knew this. But I also believe that the devil knew that Solomon had a weakness, and his weakness was going to be in the opposite gender. Because the compromising beliefs that we find with this As we go on, in in verse three and verse eleven, so he had seven hundred wives and princesses, three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. These weren't just set up to be political relationships. He was loving these women, and for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. The problem comes in the next verses. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians. So he married a Zidonian. And there was a goddess of the Zidonians. After Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem. And for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise he did for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Compromise. The God of Israel came to Solomon in a dream and asked him something. So we have to believe that Solomon knew better. Compromise brought in all these strange gods. Are we familiar with what all these gods had beliefs on? Like what all these people believed that these gods could do for them? Just picking one out, and this is the one that was common. I've heard this before, but Molech. Molech, the god of the Midianites, of Moab, Moab, they had the belief of children's sacrifice. Solomon the wise, the wise king of Israel, had a wife that sacrificed children. And is it likely to believe that some of his children were sacrificed along with other children at the shrine of Molech? Quite possibly. Boys, don't marry women that sacrifice children. That's pretty easy to figure out. But the beautiful thing is, is that when we read about Solomon, is that there's, there's repentance, there's grace. The compromise that we're going to see is that, you know, a compromising character, how do I put this? When we compromise, we're basically stepping outside of our faith. We're borrowing something from somebody else. And we're trying to do something more with what we have because we want to impress the outside world. God forbid we're in a situation now as we're raising children. We have so much data. We have so much information. We have so much technology out there that we're fighting with. And it's brought into our world. It's brought into our homes. And we see this today. We see where there's kids that are sitting down with phones and they're staring at the phones and they're not paying attention to what's going around them. These same kids are within our church. They're within our our homes. And we're finding that the technology compromise is a very, very subtle way in which the devil is going to enter your house. Because what we're finding is is that no matter how much little bit of searching does, the more the little bit turns bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the point is is that we tend to justify our sins. And so what I'm saying is, is that compromise isn't. Isn't just the fact that we're looking at technology, but we're looking at the wrong things. We're listening to the wrong music. We're listening to the watching the wrong uh, movies, and 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 maybe even intermingling with the wrong people. Because if you ever find in your situation where somebody tells you something that is totally against your belief system, by backing down and buckling that buckling to them, you have then compromised your belief system. And what God is trying to say is is that. He needs people that are going to be absolutely strong to his ideas and his commandments and his ways. Because the one thing that's scary about the devil is he goes after the head. He always goes after the head. He finds that if he can take out the people, the leadership, it's going to trickle down because when leaders fall, followers will follow. And the compromise is going to come in Christian form within our church, within our homes as as where we are, where we work, because it affects our character. And our character, the battle for our intellect is going to be the last battle that's on this earth. And the more we compromise, the more we let our intellect fall and fall and fall and slip and slip and slip. Now, it might be kind of funny how these sermons are born because I read this whole thing about the sandwich, but then I also kind of think about my own personal life. Because, you know... God forbid, I shouldn't be up here. I should not be up here having a sermon considering from where I came from. I came from a household where I had two non-believing parents. As a matter of fact, this July, we had a family vacation we were planning, and we decided to stop by and visit my father, who lived down in the Detroit area. This would be the last time I'd see my father alive. He had been diagnosed with cancer before that. And seeing him sit there, he no longer could hold his body up. He was in a wheelchair. He could no longer hold his head because he was just riddled with cancer. And as I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him, and by no means am I like, heart-hardened because of this or anything, but he cried, and he cried, and he cried, and he cried, and he repeated, I'm sorry, over and over again probably about a dozen times. And I remember afterwards, I don't know if it was my wife or one of the kids said, Why is he saying he's sorry? Why is he apologizing? And I said, You know what? He had a lot of regrets in his life, he had a lot of demons that he was dealing with. And his I'm sorry's were just a lot deeper than just that superficial I'm sorry for being here, I'm sorry you've got to see me this way. Because he was looking at me and he was just saying, I'm sorry. And you know what? When I think about a sermon based on compromise and, and, and not compromising who we are, whether or not it's as children, wives, husbands, fathers, mothers, the moment that we do the moment that we come to the recollection of what we did, that breeds regret. And I think that what we need to do is we need to understand that. We're not cursed because we compromise. We have a saving grace, but if we don't ever take ourselves out of that, we're going to sit and regret. And I'm going to sit there and I'm going to think about how my dad apologized to me. And that's the last thing he would say, that he was sorry. And so I get to spend the rest of my life processing, processing, and processing his compromises. Because, in fact, like I said, I have no God given right to be up here. It's because he wasn't a father. He wasn't a person that was going to, how do I say, he wasn't going to stick to his word. He, um, he, did, he did the basic things, but you know what? He didn't stick to his word. And as parents, as Christian parents, yeses are yeses, noes are noes. And I didn't get that growing up, but by the, by the saving grace, I'm here and I don't have to adhere to those same beliefs or compromises that my father did. So as I said, compromise breeds regret, But through those compromises, it's breeding our character. Character is what defines us, the choices we make, and that determines the characters that we'll have. It's a popular belief that the only thing they're going to take to heaven with us are our characters. And if the things, the, the decisions we make are going to affect that character and how we fit into heaven, we need to stand up now and figure out what can I do to take myself out of that compromising situation. If it happens to be some digital format, throw it away. If it happens to be some music, throw it away. If it happens to be the people that we're, we're connected with, throw them away. I mean, to be honest with you, if we're told that we have to remove our own eye, remove our own hand, throwing another person away seems to be a lot easier than doing that. We can save them. No, we can pray for them. God can save them as long as we pray for them. I want to go to Ecclesiastes because I want to continue with Solomon. Ecclesiastes is the book Solomon wrote towards the end of his life. Some say it's a combination of the book of wisdom. I say it's the book of regrets. And it's there for that reason. It's there for us to be able to read upon it and realize, you know what, after we seek and we seek and we seek, what do we find? When we sit and we step ourselves outside of our circle of belief, where do we go? What do we get from it? You know, I had a person not that long ago say, just let me live my life. Just let me live it. Don't control me. Let me live my life. And you always want to sit there and say to them, man, you know what? I'm I'm not that old. But you don't want to do that. You want some guidance. You want somebody to show you the way. And if anybody can speak to us louder than that, it's Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Because what he's going to tell us is is that of all these things I accomplished, of all these things I had, it was worth absolutely nothing. There was nothing to it. Solomon was wealthy beyond imagination. Historically, what people have written about him is the fact that he taxed the dickens out of his people. He wasn't a popular king, but what the people saw within their community, within their, within their kingdom, was beauty. He made sure that there was singers, there was, there was all sorts of exotics taking place, and then Solomon tells us there was nothing to it. It was nothing. So in Ecclesiastes 11, obviously we have to jump to the end of the book. We can't read the beginning of Ecclesiastes, so we've introduced ourselves to Solomon as the young man. We've introduced ourselves to Solomon as the, as the mistake maker. Now we want to see Solomon as the regretter. We want to see him as the one who understood his compromises. We want to understand him as a person who understands now what it takes and the mistakes that were made. Ecclesiastes eleven nine. You know, even though it says, Oh young man and your youth and everything like that, keep in mind that it doesn't mean that it's gonna be the kids in which we're talking to. It's everybody in here. You know what? In general we're all still very young. Forever's a long time and seventy's pretty young. Ecclesiastes eleven. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, there it is—that but again. When you get to that but situation, that's always kind of a stopping point. You can read and read and read, but when you get to that but in the sentence, it kind of lets you know there's going to be more beyond it. But for all that, these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Or, if you want to get to a different translation, it's child or youth and vigor are meaningless. Psalm is getting to is is that what you have to do is understand that God is going to judge us, God's going to show us the way. We have a redeemer in Christ. Who allows me to stand up here and talk after watching a compromising parent compromise himself to death? I have a, a church that I enjoy being in and can, and can feel comfortable within. I have children that each and every day we've got to make sure that we're standing on our toes because the infiltrations are huge, huge, huge. We were just talking the there today, you know, what's worse, raising a kid in the 80s or ki- raising the kids today? You know, my parents would say, or my mom would say, like, you know, raising your kids nowadays is terrible with this cable television. Oh, you know? raising your kids nowadays is terrible with this internet, with Wi Fi, with streaming, with phones that can get you anywhere, anytime, as fast as lightning. It's the Pandora's box that we live in. Things are going to start getting wild and crazy. And I think what the the point of all this is now is, is just let's, let's look at our lives and realize that as a church, in order for us to impact the world, half-hearted Christianity doesn't work anymore. People want to see authenticity within us. People want to see, they want to see a church service. They don't want a rock concert. They really, really don't. People want to see authenticity within us, and I think that's what we have to show them. And as long as we understand that, we pray for it. And you know what? We're our own self. We have to control ourselves in how we do this. You know, thank God for the Solomons of the world. Thank God for First Kings through Ecclesiastes because there's an end of the story. I definitely could have chosen a different route. I could have taken Daniel from all this. Daniel was perfect from point A to point Z. But you know what? That's a hard thing to live up to. Daniel's a hard one to live up to. Solomon, a little bit easy. We can understand where he's coming from. But remember, we have a goal in mind, and as a unified church, we can accomplish that goal as long as we understand the checks and balances of this life and we don't take the compromises that are thrown in our way. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, um, you know, we thank you for the wisdom. As Solomon prayed, it was for the people. It was for not just the people that were in front of him, but let us pray for the people of the world, people of our community. Eyes are on us, especially when we have health seminars, we have schools in the community, we have evangelistic seniors taking place. And when we say who we are, we have to mean it, because we have to be authentic. We have to be true people to you. As we take forward this day, help us to ponder upon your word. Be thankful and always ready for your soon coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.